Good morning, everyone. Um, this morning we're continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week we only managed to get through 16 verses of Mark, uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, but this week we have the task of completing the rest of that chapter. The Sermon on the Mount has two major themes. First, it smashes the materialistic worldview that sees life as a meaningless cycle of events that take place within a closed physical system. We have a Father in Heaven, a benevolent, generous and kind creator. His character is morally beautiful and life is found when we build an intimate and trusting relationship with him. So that's the first big theme. The second theme is that the Lord Jesus invites us to be transformed at the deepest level of our personalities, to have our hearts changed so that we become perfect as our Father in Heaven is perfect. Christ's analysis of the human condition is that the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. So salvation for humanity will only come about from the inside out. It won't come through structural reform or big picture political theories. He offers to change individual men and women for, by giving us heart level righteousness. Now, obviously, we cannot develop this thing on our own. Such a thing would be impossible. In fact, it turns out that the first step is to admit our own spiritual bankruptcy. We were then taught last week how to ask our Heavenly Father to give us the spiritual resources that we need so that we can develop heart-level righteousness. In this study, we're going to find out what a righteous heart looks like. And our Lord furnishes us with six case studies, examples from real life that he uses to explain to us what heart-level righteousness looks like. The six examples are murder, adultery, divorce, oath-taking, non-retaliation and loving our enemies. The six examples seem to me to be structured as three pairs. So we're going to take them in pairs and in so doing develop three big points about the righteous heart. So that you know where uh, we're heading, uh, our three teaching points are these. The righteous heart develops internal purity. It doesn't merely focus on external actions. That's the first point. Secondly, the righteous heart seeks consistent moral living. It doesn't look for excuses. And thirdly, the righteous heart overflows with generous grace. It doesn't set limits. Before we do any of that, however, we need to clear away a common misconception. Some people think that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is presenting a new Christian set of ethics, a new set of rules and regulations which should guide our behaviour. So, 1,300 years earlier, Moses had come down the mountains with one set of rules, and now Jesus is giving us a new set of rules. But that cannot be the case. In the passage we have just read, Jesus could not have been clearer. I haven't come to abolish anything Moses told you, he says. The Old Testament law is as unmovable as the universe itself. I have come to fulfil the law, not abolish it. Well, hold on a minute, you might protest. I have been reading ahead in chapter 5. And those case studies you talked about, well, they all follow the same pattern. The Old Testament law says this thing, but I say a different thing. You get that formula time and time again. You've been taught this thing, but now I tell you a different thing. Surely that is abolishing one set of guidelines for living and replacing them with a different set. So there is a straightforward contradiction between the case studies and the Lord's earlier comment that the Old Testament law is not being abolished. Well, let me offer an explanation for that apparent contradiction, and then I will justify it from the text. Here is the explanation. I don't know uh, if you have ever seen the underside of a boat. The bit of the hull that sits out of the water may be shiny and freshly painted, 
But down near the keel, a thousand nasty things lurk. Over time, barnacles start to accumulate and accrete on the hull, leaving an encrusted mess. And the same thing happened to the Old Testament law. The Pharisees and the scribes regarded God's law as a burden. They called the Torah that very thing. It's outrageous. So they decided to tweak it a bit. So if God's law prohibited something, then the Pharisees narrowed the scope of that command. So let's imagine, uh, I don't know, there's a, a law forbidding you from taking anything from the stationary cupboard in your work. Well, a good Pharisee like me might come along and narrow the scope of that rule. That prohibition only applies to the top shelf of the stationary cupboard, which holds staplers and elastic bands. It's perfectly okay to steal paper and big pens from the lower shelves. But then on the other hand, there might be a law which permitted something, but a clever Pharisee might widen its scope. So on the road between Belfast and Newtonards, at one section I'm permitted to travel at 60 miles an hour. But don't worry, late at night, you can nudge that limit up to 70 miles an hour. And over time, the Pharisees accumulated a whole range of additions or dilutions of Moses' law. They spread over the whole Torah like barnacles on a ship's hull. So in this chapter, we see the Lord Jesus scraping the barnacles off the hull. He isn't abolishing Moses' law. He's clearing away a lot of man-made rubbish so that Moses' law could be restored to its original purpose and beauty. So that was the explanation. Now, let me show the justification for that interpretation from the text. When our Lord talked about the Old Testament, he always treated it as the Word of God. He nearly always used a stock phrase when referring to Scripture. It stands written, he would say. But here in chapter 5, you may have noticed he uses much more ambiguous phrases. You have heard it said, or it has been said. You have heard that it was said. But the killer argument here is to look at what the Pharisees were teaching. Look at uh, verse 43 if you have the text in front of you. You have heard it said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. Well, you could search through the entire Old Testament and you will never find that statement. Moses taught the people to love their neighbours as themselves, but the Pharisees thought that was too burdensome. So they narrowed its scope to people of the same race and religion. And I think what they were doing. The law given at Mount Sinai to Moses wasn't an arbitrary set of rules. It was an expression of what God is like. If you read through Moses' law, you will encounter a God who is fair and just, who cares about animal welfare, who is concerned about the exploitation of foreigners and orphans and widows. We find a God who loves a well-ordered society. He loves people to be creative and to enjoy the fruits of their labours. But the Pharisees had obscured all that moral beauty with their man-made traditions. So they taught a whole set of lies about God. They said he was the sort of God who would allow a man to divorce his wife provided he had the right paperwork. He was the sort of God who allowed you to break your promises as long as you've been careful not to mention God's name when making the promise. He was the sort of God who expected people to seek vengeance in each other, who didn't mind if you wished another person to be dead. In the word, they had taken the revelation of God's character and had distorted it, reducing the religion to a man-made set of ethics. And it's here we see just how beautiful the Lord's concept of heart-level righteousness is. Christianity isn't just another set of rules. It's not another guidebook to help us behave better. There's something much deeper going on here. Strip away all the pharisaical barnacles and you'll catch a glimpse of God's moral beauty. You'll see his abundant mercy and justice and his love and his holiness. It's like 
turning your eyes away from a soap opera on TV and gazing at the grandeur of the Rocky Mountains. At Sinai, the people couldn't approach God. But now, says Jesus, I have come to fulfill the law. So if Moses' law was like a a pen-drawn sketch, then Jesus Christ is the full-colour reality. We see the light of God's character in the actions and teachings of Jesus Christ. All the things that the law hinted at, the little glimpses it gave us of God's moral beauty, we're now seeing them in full bloom. Now look with me at verse 20. For I tell you, says Jesus, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What is Jesus saying here? Does he mean that if the Pharisees keep on average 200 rules a day, we have to keep 350 rules a day? Of course not. This surpassing righteousness is greater in depth. It reaches down below the surface of rule keeping, down into the very heart of man. In fact, it is the very righteousness of Christ himself. You see, Moses' law was written on tablets of stone. But for the Christian, the offer is being made here that the law of God will be written on our hearts. And this is the big idea behind the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is offering heart righteousness. Not a superficial collection of rules for practical living. Not a man-made ethical system to replace an earlier version. First he strips away the accretions around the Old Testament law. And then he takes that, what we might call, beautiful but pen-drawn sketch into the full-colour reality of his own morally perfect character. And finally, he offers to plant that moral beauty, the moral beauty of that righteousness, that perfect moral life, into your heart. Well, you say that's a lovely piece of theory. But what does a righteous heart look like? Well, to help us earth all these concepts, the Lord Jesus takes six case studies. And I'm going to suggest that from the first two, we learn that the righteous heart develops internal purity. It doesn't merely focus on external actions. The first illustration is about murder and anger. You'll find it in verses 21 through 26. See, the Pharisees said it was okay to regard people with implacable hatred, to wish they were dead, to utterly despise them and regard them as worthless, provided you didn't actually murder them. But in Christ's new heart righteousness, it towers over that tawdry little tradition. The real Christian will not rest until any anger in his heart is resolved. If it means that he has to leave a church service while the speaker is still at the lectern, then they should leave immediately and get it sorted out. People who at times feel an inner rage nearly always do so whenever an idol inside their own heart is threatened. Think of the emperor called Nebuchadnezzar. He flew into a rage when Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to bow down before his gold idol. They threatened his own sense of being powerful and so he became enraged. It's a really useful exercise, brothers and sisters, to think carefully about what makes you angry. That process almost certainly will uncover idolatries in your heart. The Lord then goes on to explain that the white heat of anger can sometimes cool into a cold contempt. He uses the word raka, which is an Aramaic insult. It is a most serious thing to regard another human being with contempt, to despise them. If you feel like that about someone, then stop whatever you're doing right now and repent, because you're walking a perilous path. 
And that point can operate at the level of society, where an entire people group can be regarded with contempt. Even Christians can allow ignorant prejudice to colour their thinking about ethnic groups or religious groups or people who hold alien political views. When we think of that sort of prejudice, we can see just how subversive the parable of the Good Samaritan was. The Lord told that parable to cut down all sorts of ethnic prejudices. In verses 27 through 30, the Lord talks here about sexuality. And again, we see how real heart-level righteousness is a deeper thing than the mere avoidance of wrong action. He uses strong metaphors in these verses. He talks about gouging out an eye with which offends. But all he means here is that we should take painful and practical steps to remove ourselves from temptation. So let me address married people just now. If there is even the hint of an overly friendly relationship forming with someone of the opposite sex who is not your spouse, cut that relationship down immediately. No texting, no cheeky WhatsApp messages. Even if it makes you seem cold or humorless, take the painful, practical decision to avoid temptation. Now, the common theme running through these first two case studies is that the righteous heart develops internal purity. It doesn't merely focus on external actions. So you don't have to clamp down on inner rage because you won't even allow anger to defile your heart in the first place. You don't have to drop your eyes when an attractive married person walks into the room because you won't even entertain adulterous thoughts in the heart. The second pair of case studies are about divorce and oath-taking. Now, the issue of divorce is incredibly sensitive and you should not take the few comments I now make as an exhaustive treatment of the subject. Verses 31 to 32 of this chapter should be read alongside the much fuller treatment of divorce which Matthew gives us in chapter 19 of his Gospel. It would seem that the Pharisees, who asked the Lord this question about divorce, were leaning to the lax interpretation of rabbinical thought, which allowed a man to divorce his wife for really any reason, provided he had the right paperwork. The Lord doesn't answer their question. And there's a pattern to be observed here. Every time the Lord Jesus is asked a question about divorce, he responds by talking about marriage. In other words, he turns it around. He focuses people on the moral beauty of that creatorial gift given to humanity in Genesis 2. There is something about the sinful heart which always looks for an escape into selfishness. What's the exception? What's the excuse? But the righteous heart takes loyalty and integrity with great seriousness. So our Lord treats divorce seriously. If I understand this logic correctly, the Lord permits divorce on only one ground. If the marital bond has already been shattered by infidelity or by violent abuse, then divorce may be the least worst option. Scripture does not support divorce on the grounds called irretrievable breakdown. An act of physical sexual infidelity must have taken place before a divorce is even an option. From other parts of Scripture, I personally would argue that violent abuse also shatters the marital bond. But even in the case of adultery, divorce is not inevitable. The late John Stott wisely refused to talk to anyone about divorce before he had first talked to them about marriage and reconciliation. Now, at first sight, the next case study, recorded in verses 33 through 37, seems to have nothing to do with the issues raised by the divorce case. The Pharisees, you see, had constructed this elaborate set of rules 
such as swearing by the temple or the city. And he did that in order to allow promises to be broken. The implication, of course, was that if you hadn't made this one of these formal oaths, it was perfectly okay to break your word. And once again, we see the Lord turn the argument around, away from a list of excuses to the idea of heart-level righteousness. The righteous heart will always let its yes be yes and its no be no. Instead of looking for excuses to lie in some rules over wordsmithing, the righteous heart will always act with integrity. So if you say you will do something, then don't break your word. Don't be an absolutely person. The student scene has more than enough absolutely people. You ask them to do something, absolutely comes the reply. Five minutes before you need the thing done, an apologetic text comes through. Don't promise what you can't deliver and always deliver what you promise. If you say yes, then mean it. God always keeps his promises. He doesn't do half-baked schemes. So real heart-level righteousness, if you let it bloom in your life, will change you into a person whose word can be relied upon. I am so grateful to the Lord for the reliable young Christians in our own church. So when we place these two case studies side by side, we do see that they have a common theme. The righteous heart seeks consistent moral living. It doesn't look for excuses. It values loyalty and integrity at all times and doesn't look for easy ways to escape into selfishness. Verses 38 through 42, well, they're really four little cameos which all deal with the issue about retaliation. The first clarifying point we must make here is that the Lord is talking to us as individuals. In the New Testament is quite clear that the state has a God-given duty to punish evildoers. So we shouldn't use these verses to make any political points about the relationship between the state and the individual. When the Lord tells us to offer our cheek to someone who has just struck us on the cheek, he's using an Eastern idiom. In Middle Eastern culture, uh, even today, to strike someone on the cheek is to insult them. So perhaps the best way to understand this first cameo is that we should allow someone who has just insulted us to insult us again. Without striking back. Now that doesn't mean we should be doormats. Remember that the Lord himself challenged the high priest during his trial. The point is that we shouldn't hit back. We shouldn't repay evil with evil. When it comes to the other three cameos, the only limit to the Christian's generosity will be the limit which love itself imposes. Take begging as a good example. It's not loving to give money to someone who will use that money to pursue their addictions because you are simply accelerating their path to self-destruction. In a culture with a welfare state, it's not loving to give money to someone who has made no effort to engage with state support systems to move them back into employment. So we are called to be generous and not to retaliate. We're not called to be foolish doormats who do more harm than good. Be as generous as love allows. Now, even with the caveats I have applied, you may be tempted to uh, write this paragraph off as unrealistic. Well, before you do that, just remember who spoke these words. And it was a man who turned the other cheek so that he could be punched and spat upon. These words come from the man who walked the extra mile, stumbling under the weight of his own cross. This paragraph is spoken by the man who had his clothes gambled in a soldier's wager. Our Lord reserves his most daring case study to the end. He tells us to love our enemies. And he begins by criticising one of the pharisaical rules that had accreted 
onto the Old Testament. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. And as I said earlier, you will not find that statement anywhere in the Old Testament. But I guess it's the way we naturally think. We love our families and friends, we are indifferent to most other people, and we can be tempted to hate our enemies. The love of God is in a different category from that natural approach to relationships. It was while we were God's enemies that Christ died for us. He showed love and loyalty to the very men who were nailing him to the cross. He even prayed for them. And the righteous heart will reach out in love to its enemies. But how are we to achieve that in real life? Well, let's build an answer up from the straightforward to the complicated. First of all, we need to acknowledge that some believers spend a lot of time fantasising about getting revenge on those who have hurt them. And that is unhealthy. Dreaming of personal vengeance is wrong, says the New Testament. Secondly, we should work hard to avoid ever getting bitter. Bitterness can defile an entire life. One of the best ways to overcome bitterness is to force yourself to pray for your enemies. Don't run around telling others that you're doing that. That's just spiritual preening. But quietly, in the secrecy of your conversations with your Father in Heaven, you can find calmness to pray for those who have wronged you. Moving up to the third level. We can show kindness to those who have wronged us. Sometimes praying for people can stop them from becoming like giants in our, uh, who, uh, who stomp all over our imaginations. You can start to see them as just normal, flawed human beings who have troubles of their own. So instead of tension existing all the time when they enter the room, a small act of kindness can allow some sort of stability to grow over time. Sometimes you can then start to see that in the past, we ourselves have acted badly toward others. And that's a really important and helpful moment. Without moments like that, we can become harsh, critical hypocrites. But what about forgiveness? This is the toughest level. Obviously, if an enemy repents, we are commanded to forgive. But what about those situations where there is no repentance? I sometimes find it helpful to imagine myself handing my forgiveness over to God for safekeeping, knowing that it will only be released, as it were, when the other party has repented. We are told to love our enemies, and loving people involves wanting them to repent of their sins. So we shouldn't misunderstand these verses. We should care about justice as deeply as God cares about justice. Now, when those last two case studies are put together, we see that the righteous heart overflows with generous grace. It doesn't set limits to its love. Now, these six case studies have given us a really detailed insight into what heart-level righteousness looks like. The righteous heart develops internal purity. It doesn't merely focus on external actions. The righteous heart seeks consistent moral living. It doesn't look for excuses or exceptions. And thirdly, the righteous heart overflows with generous grace. It doesn't set limits. The Sermon on the Mount is only getting underway. The Lord has so much more to teach us. But we can pause for a moment and ask ourselves, is that the sort of person I want to be? Do I want to be a human being whose heart is undefiled by anger and lust? Do I want loyalty and integrity to be consistent qualities in my life? Do I want to be a generous and gracious human being? And it seems to me that any sane person would answer yes to those questions. Those moral qualities are of much greater value than owning a yacht or some sprawling mansion in Beverly Hills. More valuable than par. And so it might be no bad thing for us to reflect on this teaching for the rest of the day by asking ourselves honestly 
What sort of person do I want to become? We all know that left to ourselves, we could never develop a righteous heart. But Christ offers to change us. What an amazing offer. He offers to transform us so that we develop the moral beauty of our Father in heaven. In the Lord's own language, he offers to change us so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. The Bible teachers who follow me will explain how this righteous heart is developed within us. But for now, as we turn to prayer, let us concentrate on what we want to become. After we pray, we'll sing a final hymn. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful moral vision of our righteous heart. We're so grateful that your Son doesn't offer us an ethical system, a list of rules and regulations that only deal with the externalities of life. And as we have listened to him teach, we long to be your sons and daughters, to bear the family likeness of moral beauty. So we ask that you would develop within us an internal purity. We ask that you would develop within us a consistent moral life. And we ask that you transform mean spirit and vengeful hearts into a righteous heart that overflows with grace. In Jesus' name, amen.